Hey, Malika here. I want to let you know about a new Al Jazeera podcast. If you need in-depth analysis of news and current affairs in one of the world's most misunderstood and complicated regions, join me, Sami Zaydan, every Thursday on the Essential Middle East podcast. You can check it out wherever you get your podcasts. Here's today's show. This week, Muslims worldwide will mark the end of the month of Ramadan. For millions, it's a time for prayer, reflection, community. That goes for Palestinians, too. But in the Holy Land, it's never that simple. Fighting between stone-throwing masked men and Israeli police who fired stun grenades and tear gas. There's been an escalation of violence affecting both Palestinians and Israelis. Palestinian attacks in Israeli cities have killed at least 14 people. Israeli raids and shootings in the occupied West Bank have killed at least 16 people. All this during overlapping holidays for Muslims, Jews, and Christians. And in Jerusalem, the Al-Aqsa Mosque is again at the center. Friday prayer has now ended. We are at Damascus Gate. We've seen a huge number, tens of thousands of worshippers making their way through the morning to access the Al-Aqsa Mosque compound for prayers on the third Friday of Ramadan. Every year, Ramadan becomes a flashpoint for long-running conflicts in Jerusalem. So today, we're talking about what it means when one of the holiest months of your year becomes a battleground. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. I'm talking to two Palestinians about their experience of Ramadan. My name is Samah Jabr. I'm a consultant psychiatrist and the head of the mental health unit at the Palestinian Ministry of Health. I'm also a Palestinian Jerusalemite resident. My name is Diana Boutou and I'm a human rights lawyer based in Palestine. Dr. Jabir, I would love to start by asking you about your memories of Ramadan in Jerusalem when it's at its best. I had the pleasure of spending a Ramadan in Jerusalem, and I have such vivid memories of the atmosphere, the smell of food, the joy that people had, even though we were all fasting. How would you describe Ramadan in Jerusalem? It's a time of pleasure and joy, and it's a special time for socializing. Uh, We enjoy the prayer in Al-Aqsa Mosque. And usually people uh, count the number of visitors from outside Jerusalem who come and make the prayer in Jerusalem. So it's uh, a, a time of connecting with everyone in Palestine. In very early memories of my childhood, I used to go to the mosque with my grandmother. She used to pray and I used to play play football in the mosque. <laughs> I feel like every kid can relate. As for Diana, she lives in Ramallah, 
but I talked to her from her family home in the city of Haifa, which has fewer Palestinians than Jerusalem does. She said that Ramadan is different there. Haifa is a city within a country that is classified as a Jewish state. And what it means to be living in a Jewish state is that it's a system of privilege where where Jewish holidays are respected and enjoyed, but every other holiday is not. So, for example, Ramadan is just, um, it's just noted as a blip, if at all noted at all. Mm. And it's not viewed as a major holiday, even though about 20% of the population are Muslims. And you have a significant number of people who are fasting, who are breaking fast at the same time, small country. If you work for an Israeli employer, the level of understanding that uh, the the toll that Ramadan takes on the body is ignored, mm. plus the idea that that um, there's a holiday at the end of it is oftentimes ignored. Diana says that sense of isolation that Palestinians feel in Haifa is also a physical isolation. That got stronger after the Second Intifada in the year 2000. The aftermath left a dramatically escalated Israeli security apparatus. Israeli citizens' daily lives got safer, and Palestinians got further apart. Prior to the year 2000, for example, you could spend Ramadan visiting your family throughout the entirety of historic Palestine. If you were living in the Gaza Strip and had relatives in the West Bank, it was possible to go between the two with everybody gathering around together, which is what's supposed to be, it should be normal. But that is no longer possible. Mm. So now people are cut off from one another. And I can just tell you about my own family. Mm-hmm. Over the course of the past two decades, we have yet to be able to gather together as a family, whether that's during Ramadan or during Eid, or unfortunately um, in our most difficult moments in life when somebody dies, or in some of the more happier moments where somebody gets married. And that's so different from the Ramadans that I remember as a child where, where it wasn't like that at all. We were um, spending the entire time together as one large family. This year, one of the reasons for the restrictions on movement was because of overlapping holidays. That led to more tension in Jerusalem, and that led to one of the biggest one-day mass arrests of Palestinians in years. Friday was a confrontation between Palestinians and the Israeli police. More than 150 people injured, more than 400 people arrested. 2022 is the year in which we've seen that Passover, Ramadan, Easter and Good Friday, and Orthodox Easter and Good Friday are all happening within the same space. It has the potential to be very powerful for people who are of faith, but also for people who are not. Just to see how people can come together and live in equality could be potentially very powerful. But this isn't about religion at the end of the day. This is about 
Jewish privilege. And it's about giving rights to one group and denying rights to everybody else. The epicenter of this conflict is the site of the Al-Aqsa Mosque. Jews call it the Temple Mount, the former site of the ancient Temple of Jerusalem. A complex agreement governs Muslim and Jewish control over the site and its surroundings. One part of that agreement is that the site is for Muslim worship only. Jewish worshipers are supposed to only be allowed to visit. There are many Jews that want to be able to pray there, and some groups are trying to make that happen. There are also groups who want to rebuild the temple. We're on a, another milestone in the process of the return of the Jewish people to their homeland. It is a new start of the redemption. And we hope that next year or even before, we'll be, we will be on the Temple Mount. The law will come from here. All of this creates a major flashpoint for conflict. What does that mean? It means that they're going to take over the Al-Aqsa compound, destroy the mosque in order to build the temple. Now, in normal places, one would say these people are fanatics, they're crazy, they need to be stopped. But that's not Israel. So the Israelis were allowing more and more settlers to come up onto the Al-Aqsa compound. Again, these are people who seek its destruction. They allowed them to come up onto the compound always surrounded by bodyguards and Israeli security services. Always. This was nothing new. It happens all the time in Jerusalem. What's also added to the tension is a small extremist Jewish group calling for sacrifices in the Al-Aqsa compound during Passover. That's a call that they make every year. It's something that the Israeli government bans every year, including this one. But this year, one of the settler groups took it a step further. They're called Return to Temple Mount. They then announced that if an Israeli is successful at sacrificing an animal on the Al-Aqsa compound, that they will be rewarded to the tune of 10,000 shekels, more than 3,000 U.S. dollars. If a person came up to the Al-Aqsa compound with an animal and they were arrested, like an animal for sacrifice, they'd be paid uh, something close to $300. And if they were simply arrested for coming to the Al-Aqsa compound, then they would be paid $150. The Israeli uh, government said that will not happen. It has not happened. And in fact, six people were arrested on Friday, including someone who had a goat near the old city. Now, the response was instead to put limitations on Palestinians, because that's what they do each and every year. Each and every year, the Israelis put limitations on the space in which Palestinians can worship, because for them, the priority is that Israelis are allowed to enjoy Passover. And not just Israelis enjoying Passover, but even the, the extreme right wing who openly call for the destruction of the Al-Aqsa compound. I give you this background because the context matters. And just to be clear here, because we're also talking about Easter, this includes not only Muslims, but also Christians, right? Absolutely, absolutely. And this is why I was saying that this isn't just about religion, because it's not about religion. 
For example, similar restrictions were placed on Palestinian Christians on Easter Sunday to get to, to churches. It's not just Muslims, but it also includes Christians as well, because the whole system is designed to bolster Jewish privilege and designed to suppress everybody else. You know, Diana, I can't help but feel a sense of deja vu, an awful sense of deja vu, because it is so hard to ignore that this feels like a repetition from last year exactly. This time last year, fighting around the mosque and access restrictions led to an 11-day war between Israel and Palestinian armed groups in Gaza. We saw the same violence at Al-Aqsa nearby, the same discussion over how it was covered in the media as clashes, which implies violence on both sides rather than an attack on unarmed worshippers. Why is this exact same scenario playing out again this year? Because it goes back to whether Palestinians are respected as individuals or whether they're seen as subjects. It wasn't just 2021. 2019 was the same. Virtually every year, there's an attempt to try to control Palestinians, especially during Ramadan, because they're afraid of the power that religion has to unite people. Ramadan is not just about fasting and praying, but it's also about life and recognizing how um, the beauties that we've been given in life. It's a wonderful month to gather. And instead of Israel allowing us to live these, this 30 days of joy, they find ways in which they crush it. And yet you don't see that the same thing is done on the other side. As I was looking at the images of tear gas filling through Al-Aqsa Mosque, men in boots walking into the mosque, a place where we are told from very young age, you take off your shoes and you leave your shoes at the door. You see these men stomping through, very heavily armed. I couldn't help but think, what if this had been a synagogue? Would the, would the world also look around and say that that was okay? Diana, do you think there's been any opportunity for people to heal from last year's violence during this month or the year before that or the year before that? Or when the month comes around, do people just brace themselves for what they know is coming? There is no healing. There is no healing because this isn't just uh, Israeli attacks from one Ramadan to the other Ramadan. It's attacks that happened two days before Ramadan, attacks that happened two weeks before Ramadan, three weeks, four weeks, five. It's round-the-clock violence that we are living in. And what this means is that we as Palestinians never have the chance to absorb, to heal, to get over our trauma. It all raises the question of PTSD. And Dr. Jaber, the psychiatrist from Jerusalem, says that for Palestinians, there is no P. 
It's an ongoing trauma since the events that led to the creation of the State of Israel in 1948, which Palestinians call the Nakba. There is no post, there is no P in the Palestinian case. Wow. It is repetitive. It's not one single event. It's enduring, it's ongoing. Another big difference is the collective aspect and the historical aspect of the Palestinian trauma. Mm. So sometimes we see the child or the grandson, they come with symptoms and dreams that don't belong to their personal experience, but to the experience of their father or their grandfather, or to the collective experience. People dream of events similar to the Nakba. They dream of home demolition, even when it doesn't happen to them and when their home is not threatened. Uh, But it's a common experience that uh, consumes the inner peace of many, many Palestinians. You know, this might be a little bit too personal, but I'll say it anyway. One of my very dear friends lives in the Gaza Strip. And just before uh, Ramadan began, we were talking on the phone. Now, let me put this in perspective. I have not physically seen my friend Mm -hmm. in 17 years. Oh, wow. Because I can't get into the Gaza Strip and she can't come to Haifa. She can't come out and I can't go in. And what she said to me this time around, she said, I've lived through so many of these attacks and I don't know if I have it in me this time around. This is just before Ramadan began. Now, what do you say to somebody who tells you this? What do you say? Um, Yes, you do. Or, I hope it doesn't happen. But even if you say, I hope it doesn't happen, we both know that I'm telling a lie. We can both hope, but we know that it's going to happen at some point. What did you say? He said exactly that. I said, we have to stay strong and but it will become easier. But these are all like, uh, these are words that fill up space. But I don't think that they're words that have any real meaning. Yeah. It's hard to be comforted by them because you know the truth. You've lived it and are living it. Yeah. For Dr. Jaber, she's treating people who are also living it, and she encourages them to put words to their pain. All these conditions, I understand it as a psychiatrist, but also as a resident. And um, uh, I know very well that the circles of grief and loss uh, don't end uh, around one individual in one family, in the neighborhood, in uh, in the whole city. But she said, it's not all suffering. After all, they're still here. I think the population in general uh, has not been defeated by the events of last year and the aggression and the cycle of violence that we witnessed 
every year, all the time, but it intensifies during Ramadan. I think the Palestinian community has not been defeated. I have always argued that solidarity is very important psychologically, even when it is inefficient politically. In my practice as a therapist, uh, when I deal with a person who uh, survived a man-made trauma like torture or abuse, it is traumatizing, but the trauma would be doubled when others understood what happened and they didn't do anything to prevent it or object against it. So it's a tough time, but people resist. And I think they get a lot of strength out of this resistance. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Alexandra Locke with Amy Walters, Nagin Oliai, Ruby Zeman, Ney Alvarez, and me, Malika Bilal. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Aya Al-Milek and Adam Abugad are our engagement producers. We'll be back on Wednesday. <laughs>